Turn your Bibles, if you would, to Numbers chapter 9. Um, you know, it's been, it's been an unusual year. First of all, I want to thank uh, Brother Jim and, and Ashley and those that are working sound and cameras today. It's been a, an eventful week ministry-wise here at Fisherville, and I thank God for those who will step out of their comfort zones and step into places that maybe they, they're not used to being in to make sure that uh, we can continue to do and enjoy the thing that we hold most dear to us. And that is to gather together as the people of Christ and, uh, and worship and be encouraged by one another's presence. So thank you guys for that so much for stepping in there. Um, it, you know, we say it's been an eventful week, and if we're honest, it's been an eventful year. If, if not unusual, maybe is the way we should say that. And I was introduced years ago uh, to the ministry of Jerry Bridges. And many of you may, may know this gentleman. He died in, in 2016, but just a remarkable uh, he was with the Navigators organization out of Colorado Springs and had a pro prolific writing ministry and speaking ministry. But one thing that was life-altering for me um, early on in, in my days of pastoring was this phrase that he hammered home in much of his writings. And it was, it was this simple phrase, preach the gospel to yourself daily. And what he means by that is all the benefits and assurances that Christ has purchased for us, continually be reminding yourself of those things, that you would be encouraged, that you would know how to navigate uncertainty, that you would know how to walk forward in faith and be obedient to God. So as we come to the last Sunday in 2020, uh, there's no doubt that we will confess it's been, it's been a trying year in many ways, but I, my prayer is, even for me, that I hope that we would be just as eager to confess that the Lord has been faithful to us, that his sovereign faithfulness toward us has been demonstrated uh, in, in every way. I mean, there have been some difficult times, and people have suffered loss, maybe or definitely more than, than in years past, but it's his constant display of faithfulness to us that is our hope. We come to the book of Numbers, which it isn't a book that we find ourselves in often, um, maybe because of the title, we're sh we shy away from it sometimes, but we're going to talk about that. But it, it's a fitting narrative to help us remember the promise of God's presence with us, the certainty of his guidance toward us, and the call for us to faithfully obey him in times of uncertainty. So it's, a, it's an incredible picture of the battle for continual trust in the midst of difficulty and a glorious display of his provision to us, to a people, and hear this, with wandering hearts. That's what the book of Numbers shows us very clearly. Now, the, the book of Numbers has an unfortunate title in our English Bibles, and don't throw anything at me with me saying that. But it's, the, the numbers comes from the first chapter when God tells Moses to number the men, to take a census and number those who are able to wage war. So we pick that up and it's the book of numbers. In the Hebrew, they take the title of the book from the opening words of the book and it is this, in the wilderness. But better said, they often say, in the wilderness, the Lord spoke. And how gracious is that? What, what better way to see and be encouraged by this particular book than to remember it's in the wilderness, in, in the difficulty, in the uncertainty, the Lord spoke. And that's a promise that continues toward us even today. What grace there is for us in that. 
And we have to remember that the book of Numbers, if we continue to call it that, and I will because that's how we know it, it is a, it is a part of the larger Exodus narrative, which is absolutely essential to our understanding who God is and what he is doing on our behalf and for his glory. It is, it is our story. That is this. It's, it's to say that it's a part of the overall gospel narrative of enslavement, deliverance, and rest. In other words, where we were, where we are, and where he is taking us. So this is our story. This is how life is framed for the people of God. I mean, the psalmist drew on this picture continually. If you look at Psalm 95, 135, 105, and 106, the psalmist is drawing on these images of being delivered, having passed through the Red Sea, coming into the promised land, wondering to get there. And then also, Paul draws on it in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 11, when he says these things were written down, this exodus narrative narrative was written down for our benefit that we might learn from this because, again, this is our story. And we find allusions to this very passage we'll look at today in John chapter 1. So the good news that the book of Numbers makes clear to us is that God is steadfast in his purpose to fashion for himself a people who will display his glory by their obedience to the world. But something has to happen first. Something must take place for that to become reality. And that's what we're going to look at today. Because you see there's a dark side to the book of Numbers as well. Because here we see the covenant people of God at their most discontented state. They are grumbling. They are wanting and longing for what they had at one time. They're painting pictures of Egypt that look very different than what the reality was while they were there. So they're chasing what I would call vapor contentment. They're longing to be content and to be settled and satisfied, but they're chasing it and it disappears because the glory they are seeking is a vapor glory. The glory they want to see is a vapor glory. I argue today that there's one and one thing only that will, by design, bring us into a lasting state of contentment, and that is to see the glory of God. And all the chasing that we do to find contentment is in reality a ferocious chasing after a sight of God's glory because we are hardwired to be satisfied only with the sight of that. So, if the exodus narrative is our story, and it is, and if we find ourselves in uncertainty, which we do, and our hearts bend toward discontentment, which they do, what hope is there for us? How do we navigate all of this? So in Numbers 9, by the time you get here, if you're reading through the Torah and you get to Numbers, by the time you get to Numbers 9, we're at the foot of Mount Sinai and the people have been there almost a year. That's a long time to be camped out there. A lot has taken place, and most notably for us, as we'll see, is the rebellion of the people with Aaron and his little golden calf incident. And what God told Moses, what he threatened to do, and what Moses' response was, that will become very significant to what we read today. So I'm going to read verses 15 through 23 of Numbers chapter 9. So I bet you're relieved that this is not an exposition of a census, as, as beneficial as that would be. 
This is what Moses has recorded for us in Numbers 9, beginning in verse 15. On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent, after that, the people of Israel set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the people of Israel camped. At the command of the Lord, the, Lord of Israel, the, the people of Israel set out, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle, many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and according to the command of the Lord, they remained in camp. And according to the command of the Lord, they set out. And sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning. And when the cloud lifted in the morning, they set out. Or if it continued for a day and a night, when the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a longer time that the cloud continued over the tabernacle, abiding there, the people of Israel remained in camp and did not set out. But when it lifted, they set out. At the command of the Lord, they camped. And at the command of the Lord, they set out. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord. And we get to end of this passage and you go, what in the world is Moses doing there? He has repeated himself a lot. He did it on purpose, didn't he? He's, he's hammering home something very, very significant. So all of that repetition of certain phrases that you heard are very, very significant for us. So we notice he's immediately stressing the obedience of the people. And the connection of that obedience to the abiding or remaining and lifting of the cloud from over the tabernacle. Now, 15 through 23 of Numbers 9 is a very unique passage in the Numbers narrative. It's like a hole punch in this that lets us see all the way back to Exodus chapter 40. This is, this is sort of jumping back. It, it's really not a part of, of what's happening in the moment because the people are getting ready to break camp They've been there almost a year and start marching toward Canaan. And so Moses is saying, hey, here's what the wondering that these people are going to go through looked like. Here's what you need to remember was happening day by day and month after month for them. This is how they were obedient. This informed everything they did. Even in the midst of their grumbling and their wondering hearts, this is what it looked like. So it shoots us back to Exodus 40, verses 34 through through uh, 38 says this, after the tabernacle was initially set up, listen how you could, you could take this, it's almost like this passage has been plucked out of Exodus and set right down here in Numbers. It says this, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord, very important, filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the Lord had set, the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There's that repetition for stress again. Throughout all their journeys, whether the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So he's describing exactly the same thing. And here in Numbers, he's allowed us to go, hey, I remember that from Exodus 40 at the very end of the book. 
After everything is set up, he describes, here's how it was. And so we're being reminded again, the people are getting ready to break camp and to march forward. Here's how things functioned at that time. This is what the wondering looked like. So the first thing I want you to see in verses 15 and 16 is this, and we mentioned these earlier, the promise, yea, I would say the reality of the Lord's presence with his people. And this is intended to be a great comfort to us, and it should be. I mean, this is our great hope that God is with us. This is the meaning of what we have just celebrated, Emmanuel, God with us, with his people. But understand, the Lord's presence among his people is no small thing, and it cannot take place without atonement because there's a breach between God and man. By the time we get to chapter 9, just in the book of Numbers, we realize, if, if we're astutely reading what's taking place, that our greatest threat is our only hope. The greatest threat we have is to find ourselves in the presence of a holy God. But that is our only hope. In chapters 3 and 4, no less than four times are there warnings, very clear warnings about approaching the Lord or approaching the articles in the tabernacle, the holy things, in a cavalier fashion. It says, they shall die. So it's no small thing to press in to our only hope. And so... We know from what we've just read, if you look at verse 15, on the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered it. At evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So what we've just read from Exodus 40 tells us that when this happens, God is displaying his glory. God's glory is on display when this cloud is over the tabernacle. Please see here. Beyond that blinding display of the glory of God in a way that the people could handle it is the perfection of God's provision for his children. There is, Moses is, is describing this in such a way that shows us that there is, there is a continuity and a steadfastness, a reliability to God's presence that fits our need. So it's no small matter that the cloud covered the tabernacle by day, and at evening, it was the appearance of fire until morning. Because this is screaming at us that what we need, if we actually need to see, and Scripture makes it clear that we do, God's glory, that it is essential to, to, the, to the entirety of this life and eternity, and that there is a, a continuity to it. We need a covering in the heat of the blazing sun of adversity. I mean, this very real practical sight that they see is saying something much bigger. That we need the covering of the glory of God in the heat of adversity. And we need the warmth of the blazing fire of the glory of God in the cold, dark night of uncertainty. Again, this is our hope. It's a way to remember and preach the gospel to ourselves that God will not leave us nor forsake us, regardless of what we're going through. But not only that, I want you to note the assurance that we have in verse 16. Look at the very next phrase. I mean, you talk about a, a graciousness and a hope. Moses writes for us there in verse 16, so it was always. God is not fickle about his presence and provision for his children. 
We may perceive it that way at times, but understand that God is constant in his love and provision and care and presence toward us. So that little phrase, so it was always, should be something you keep in mind. We need to be reminded of this. And the biggest enemy you have to believing this is your own perception. Because we don't see the cloud and the blazing fire as the people of Israel did at this time. We don't behold that with our eyes. But that's because something, or better said, someone better has come. I mentioned that this passage had an allusion in John chapter 1, and here it is. John 1.14. I want you to, to note the tie between this verse and what we, write, what we read here. John 1.14, and the, John describing Jesus coming, the incarnation. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt, and you've probably heard this a hundred times, the Greek word for dwelt is tabernacled, and that's not a mistake. Dwelt among us and looked at the result. We have seen his glory. Anytime God tabernacles, we see his glory. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. We have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So seeing the glory of God is something you do with the eyes of faith. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 6 said this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, a reference to Genesis, which speaks everything about the sovereignty of the new birth, in the new birth. He says, he has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of, here it is, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is reminding ourselves of the finished work of Jesus. And because that work is finished, everything will be okay. I can say with confidence today, those in Christ, that regardless of what this life hands you, from your perspective, the mangling that it can dish out, because of the finished work of Jesus, all will be well. So as a result, I mean, if, if that's his presence with us, that the, the promise, the reality of it is there, no less for us than it was for the people who were getting ready to break camp in March, What's the result? Look at verses 17 through 19. We find the certainty of the Lord's direction. This is crucial. This is absolutely crucial to the pursuit of, of being faithful and obedient to the will of God and growing in that obedience day by day. So when you look at verse 17, there's these, these pairs of the cloud lifting, the people setting out. The cloud settling, the people camping. He's got these pairs that go together. But I want you to notice a couple of things here before we dig into that. Is two things. Who this concerns? Twice in verse 17, Moses identifies who these people are. The people of Israel. The covenant people of God. So these are people belonging to him. As we belong to him in Christ. And what it describes. Obedience without wavering. And that's, a, that's a big deal. When it lifts, they go. When it settles, they camp. As, as discontented as they were as you work through the book of Numbers, what we have a picture of here is this overall picture of obedience to what the Lord is doing. So the question becomes, well, how did this take place? 
How, how did they receive instruction and how did they obey? If it is that important for us to demonstrate obedience, what helps us out here? And it is this. Don't, don't miss this. It is by this phrase. Look in verse 18. Because we, we see it here and then we see it again and again and again. It's a phrase that we heard ad nauseum as I read through that passage. At the command of the Lord. But, but hear this. In Hebrew, literally, what that says is, by the mouth of Yahweh. So what does that mean? I mean, this is obviously anthropomorphic language. God doesn't have a mouth in the sense that we have a mouth and doesn't speak in the sense that we speak to one another. So how is God speaking to the people that they would obey? Because over and over again, Moses says, by the mouth of Yahweh, they set out. By the mouth of Yahweh, they can't. So how is he doing it? And it is this. It is, it is by the display of his glory. Because what made them move or stay? The cloud. God's will for your life, the direction you need to go, is inextricably linked to the display of his glory to you. This is vitally important because what this passage reminds us is that the display of God's glory is being tantamount to us seeing and understanding his will for us is not not just a display through us, which we often and rightly consider. We want to say, I want God to be glorified in my life, but it is first a display to us. These people could not be obedient and display that obedience as glorifying God to the world as they marched toward Canaan unless they had seen God's glory directing them to move forward. It is absolutely essential that we understand this. And it's, the reality is that these things are dependent on one another. They're not adverse to one another. You cannot display God's, God's glory if you have not seen God's glory. It's just a simple principle. And again, how do we see it now? In the face of Christ. That is why it is essential, going back to what Jerry Bridges taught me, to preach the gospel to yourself. Beloved, never, ever get over the gospel. You don't move past the gospel. It's not, it's not the, 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 the starting blocks and then you move on to greater and, and more deep stuff. It, it's the essential. It is the fuel by which you live a life of faith. Preach the gospel to yourself. But God often shows us his glory in times of adversity and uncertainty. I mean, that's what's happening here, right? And if you think back about some, through some, some of the things you have been through, maybe you can say, you know, I, that was a tough time, but gosh, I felt so intimately connected as I was broken and I had nowhere else to fall but in the arms of Christ. And what a sweet time that was, as difficult as it was. And that's the irony in some of the things we go through. So rarely is there an age or a stage in life that, we, that we're in that we're not considering what God's will is for us, what we need to be doing, and what direction we should take. But what I want to show you, I mean, this is not a formula for you to clearly see the revealed will of God for your life, but it, it is a display of the, the fabric upon which his will for our life is painted, and that is his glory. You chasing a sight of his glory. You chasing that contentment and settledness that you're hardwired for. But you know where to go to find it. 
Again, I would say God's will for your life is inextricably linked to the display of his glory to you. That's what you chase. That leads to obedience. So get this. This is why. We, go, we shoot back. You want me to prove this to you? You shoot back to Exodus 33 and 34. I said that this little incident would be significant to this passage. Exodus 33 and 34. While Moses is up on the mountain, what's Aaron doing and the people doing? Well, according to him, a calf jumps out of the fire. But we know what happened. There was, again, a a discontented feeling in the people. They wanted to know because they just left everything as hard as it was. From from their perspective now, it looked easier because now they're out here. Where did this man Moses go? We don't know what's come of him. Make us an idol. And for the first time, we see God say, Moses, your people have rebelled. He didn't say my people. And what's he tell Moses? You go on up. Because Moses intercedes for them and says, oh, Lord, you brought us thus far. Don't let the nation say that you brought us out into the wilderness to slay us. And the Lord says, you go on up, but I will not go with you. And Moses intercedes again. Because he does not want to go forward. So in the midst of all that, here's Moses, in the midst of all that uncertainty of his people having rebelled, God threatening to not go up with them. And Moses saying, look, if you don't, want, if you don't go with us, I don't want to go. And what is Moses' main concern? What is the one passionate, life-altering plea that comes from the mouth of Moses in this moment? Show me your glory. That makes all the difference. Moses is going to march toward a place he does not know, has not seen. He's got a stiff-necked people behind him. What makes it possible for him to move forward? The glory of God. Show me your glory. Because we know God's response. You can't see it and live, but here's what I'll do for you. I'll put you in the rock and show you the afterburners when I fly by. And that's what he does. And what's Moses' response? He made haste to bow low and worship. Beloved, this, this should be the whoop and the wharf of our life. We want to grow in obedience, and we're going to see why that's so crucial in just a second. Then this is what we have to chase. Seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. Show me your glory. I find myself, more often than not in these days, praying that simple prayer. And I don't, you know, that, that's a dangerous prayer to pray. If God told Moses, you can't see it and live, then to pray, show it to me. Show me the, all I can take. It's going to rattle you. And this is all that mattered to Moses. In that moment, the prospect of seeing God's glory gave him courage to step forward with his people. All of the, the contingencies and the unknowables and the uncertainties paled in comparison to that seeing his glory. And beloved, the greatest display of the glory of God is the bloodstained cross and the empty tomb on your behalf. And is this always easy? I mean, it, it, it makes it sound simple, but is, is, is this always easy? And I would say absolutely not, because what, look in verse 19. What is implied here in verse 19? In that simple little phrase, even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, which means, hey, You don't always understand what this display will mean and what God is doing in any particular moment. And his timing may be very different 
than what yours is. You may want him to move quickly. You may want him to slow down. How many of you have been there in the time where you always say God moves, he's got a different timing and sometimes it moves slower, but how many of you have been in a place where you're like, whoa, slow down? I've been there and it's like scary. But he moves by his sovereign will for your good and his glory. So verse 19 starts to unveil what we're going to consider in just a second, but it makes clear that the people often didn't understand or maybe had a different intention, yet they kept the charge of the Lord, what it says there. So even when... They still did. So if God is present with us, if he is displaying his glory to us for our satisfaction and a cultivation of our obedience to him, what does that do? Look in verses 20 through 23. The obedience of the Lord's people. Now, this issue is perhaps the most important issue in the Christian life. Here's why. Jesus makes it very clear. That obedience is the display of one's love for him. Look at John 14, verses 15 and 21. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And some versions say you will obey my commandments, if we're wanting consistency there. In verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps or obeys them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. How important is obedience? And the Apostle Paul understood this clearly. In the, in the beginning of the book of Romans, this theological mountain that he wrote, the very beginning, when he's in his introduction, introducing who he is and what his ministry is about, listen to what he says. This little phrase that maybe we passed over a lot. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. I mean, that's a glorious statement. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about what? The obedience of faith among the nations. It's everything. How do you display that you belong to Christ? That you love him? That you're obedient? This passage makes abundantly clear that obedience is not optional, but for the covenant people of God, in fact, it makes clear that perfect obedience is not optional. That's bad news for us. Enter the Lord Jesus, who was perfect in his obedience to the Father, and that perfect obedience is credited to us. So resting in his perfect obedience, we don't have to fear our imperfect obedience. But that doesn't mean we don't chase, that we don't move forward and grow in obedience. So in these verses, you know, when I read those, that was at, you know, at the command of the Lord, at the command of the Lord, they stayed, they camped, they stayed, they camped, at the, they let out, they set out, all those things. It was over and over and over again. And Moses is hammering a very strong point here. A lot of back and forth and time reference and abide, lift, camp, set out, all of that stuff. But five times in these verses, he uses that phrase, by the mouth of the Lord. So every time we see that phrase, we have to think God's showing his glory. God is displaying his glory to the people and they are doing what he is saying in that moment. 
So the heart of what Moses is saying here is seen in verse 22. It, the issue is obedience, and obedience isn't always easy. When you look in verse 22, you find this phrase, whether it was two days or a month or a long time. So the simple bottom line here is that when God's glory is seen in our staying, we stay. When God's glory is seen in our going, we go. But I want you to note in all of this what obedience does not depend on. It does not depend on our understanding of God's timing or design. I mean, did you catch those few days, evening until morning, a day and a night, two days, a month, longer? What is he, why is Moses saying all of that? He's saying it doesn't matter if you understand or you have a grasp on or if you even like God's timing. But the issue is trust. The issue is not you trying to figure out, and we do this. My default is that I want to know exactly where I'm going to be, what I'm going to be doing, what my family's going to look like. I want to know all that stuff. But the only thing I'm charged with seeking and that God is eager to show me is the display of his glory. Because that's what's going to satisfy me. Because I've got news for myself. Even if I could see what my family will look like or where I'll be or what I might be doing, that will change. I'm, my wife and I are in the stage of life right now where that's very clear to us. We are, you know, we've always heard the term empty nesters. We've had, you know, we have four kids and now we have a son-in-law now. And we're looking down the barrel of empty nest. Which, someone from my perspective, that's, I'm like, oh, what's that like? And it's happening. It's different. And the phrase we use is it's different, but it, it's good, but it's different. And so we don't always understand. And that changes. It rapidly. But the one thing that does not change that we need to pursue to get us through this and to be obedient in all of the change and, and fluctuation is to seek the glory of God. To chase it. To be satisfied with the vision of it. How do we do that? You preach the gospel to yourself. You remember what Christ has done on your behalf. And here's what obedience does depend on. And I've sort of already told you this, but it's God's command wrapped in the display of his glory. That's all it depends on. That's the only thing we need to be concerned with. What has he said and made clear by his glory being displayed to me? So at the command of the Lord, by the mouth of the Lord, and if we're honest, there's a lot of frustration in the unknown and unpredictable. But if we will look for the glory of God being displayed to us, then we'll be on good footing to display the glory of God through us. And one can't happen without the other. So God's design is to display his glory to us, that we would display his glory to the world. And we're hard, I've mentioned several times, we're hardwired for this. And this helps us to understand why we do the things we do. If you understand how, when I say we're hardwired, I mean that's by design, that God, having created us, has made us this way. That there's no other satisfaction that will last for us than seeing this glory, than chasing down a sight of who he is. So the design is that obedience to the commands of God uh, will, will display his glory to the world. But there's a problem. There's a problem that we fight daily. We try to find a satisfying display of glory in other places besides God, besides God himself. And that, 
So that, that's what I called earlier vapor glory, which results in vapor contentment. And you know what I mean by vapor? It's there for a minute. It, it, it may be satisfying, but it's gone. And there, therefore, we continue to chase. So the flip side of the coin is this, that even our disobedience is no less the result of chasing a side of glory, but, but not in God. To understand that this is true is simply looking at the, the, why we pursue the things we pursue. I mean, the reason you love, if you want to know that we're, understand that we're hardwired to see things outside of us, that something that's more glorious that will make us feel content and settled, the reason you love the beach or the mountains or the Grand Canyon, whatever it may be, is because these are, and those are good things. I'm not, I'm not doubting that because I love these things. But the reason we love them and the reason we want to get outside of ourselves and go, is because they are a reflection of the glory of God in creation. This is Paul's argument in Romans 1. I mean, the first time I saw the Grand Canyon, it took my breath and made me cry. I'm a baby, so what? But it blew my mind. Because I've been told when we lived in New Mexico, that, ah, it's just a big hole in the ground. Well, of course it is. How to get there and why is it there? So that, that proves to me and to you, that the reason you, you are amazed by seeing something that is immensely bigger than you are and it catches you up and gets you outside of yourself is because you're hardwired for that very purpose. To ultimately find that gazing in the face of Christ to see the glory of God. Who makes all of those things. I mean, if we settle on just the reflection, I mean, how would this look? If I, if I always went up to my wife and held up a mirror, I don't want to look at you directly, but there. She'd think I was crazy, and I would be stupid for doing that. Because if we stop with the reflection and then go to the reality, we'll keep chasing. Because reflection is hard and flat and gives no affection. So it tells us, hey, God allowing us to see these glorious things is saying, hey, look to the reality. C.S. Lewis had a wonderful way of putting this, uh, this little writing. He, he talked about um, a sunbeam and a tool shed. Some of you may have read this. There's, he talks about being in a tool shed, the door closed, but the sun is shining through the crack, and you can see the beam. And you've probably seen this in your house. Sun coming through the window, and you see dust flying around. Now that your house is dusty, everybody's house is dusty, right? But you see the, the particles dancing in the light. And he said, we can be look at that and go, wow, that's cool. He said, or you can step into the warmth of that sunbeam and look straight up to where it's coming from and see the blazing sun that makes it possible. And it's the same thing. Don't be satisfied with the result, but look for the source in God himself. So this is evident. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, and just being honest with yourself, you know, I've never I've been much of a church person, but it's Christmas time, I'm here with a family, whatever it may be. This is nice, but, you know, I've never done all these things you talk about that you Christians talk about faith in Christ and, and resting in him alone, all these things. And, and I would simply say this. Number one, I'm so glad you're here. But secondly, with this, that, that the reason you pursue the things you pursue is because of this very truth. I mean, this is a universal truth. 
Because we're all made in the image of God. So we're all hardwired for this very truth. The reason we chase down the things we do and find joy and satisfaction in the things we do is because we are looking for something much bigger and outside of us. And ultimately, the only thing that will give us the satisfaction we seek is to see the reality, not the reflection. And i got a lot of reflections that I look at that I enjoy. And the reflections are okay, but I have to go past that to see the reality. The reflections are given for our enjoyment, but not to stop there. So Here's what I want you to, to take away from this this morning. Number one, the issue of God's glory. Number one, displayed to us before through us. It must be displayed to you, and, and, and don't miss that. This is what he longs to show you. This is what you long to see. So chase that in your life. And for it to be displayed through us is an issue of obedience. How do we display God's glory? By obediently following him. Then the issue of God's grace. The amazing thing about this passage in the Old Testament in general is that God cared to give direction at all. I mean, the nations around the people of Israel had no idea what their gods demanded of them. They were constantly sacrificing and you know, sacrificing their children and all of these things to appease the weather god or the god of the harvest or the god of the, the rains, the, whatever it may be. Constantly, constantly, constantly. And any, when anything happened, that they didn't like, the gods must be maligned, must be upset. So they went into this frenzy of trying to figure out, but God, our God graciously, the one and true God, the creator, the sovereign of the universe, gives us direction. He speaks. And the other issue is the issue of God's sovereignty, which has is, which is flowed through this entire thing. No explanation is given. Move when I say move. Settle down when I say settle down. God does not owe us explanation for the things he's doing in us and with us. And how we can be okay with that is to preach the gospel to ourselves. To know that in all, he knows and does all things well and he will always and only display his glory and, and pursue to impart upon us our joy. So I've always told my kids, you know, when you, when you, when you pray something you, you want to take place or something you want, you're praying, God's answer will always be yes or I've got something better. Not yes, no, but yes or I've got something better in mind. And it changes everything. And God's will for us is inextricably linked to the display of his glory to us. So I hope that by just looking at this little flashback right in the middle of the book of Numbers or at the beginning of it, has helped us to see this, this solid truth that the glory of God is the canvas on which his will for your life is painted. And if you would see it and understand it, you've got to look to see his glory in all things. This is, you know, this is why Paul in Corinthians said, whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And he's qualifying everything in the Christian life as being a matter of obedience to God revealing himself to us in Christ. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. Father, I pray that you would take anything that has been confusing from my mouth or out of kilter with the glorious truth of the gospel and simply let it fall away from our remembrance. Father, we would pray this morning, show us your glory. Father, we need it. It is the only thing that will satisfy us by your glorious design. So, Father, may we pursue a sight of your glory as we would be committed to preaching the gospel to ourselves daily, to not letting things that come at us that tend to rock our world or shake us or remove us from a place of steadfastness, may we not let those things in any way alter our perception of seeing you as you are, because that alone is what we need. We thank you that because of the finished work of Jesus, we can confidently say, regardless of what we've experienced or what is on the horizon, that all will be well, that everything will be okay. Father, to be there, be those here today who have never come to Christ in repentance and faith, our prayer is that you would, by your Spirit, open their eyes. Father, give them new birth. Draw them to yourself. Be gracious to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.